Good morning, everyone. I hope that you are well. Uh, my name is Tonil, and I'll be doing the scripture reading. Today's scripture comes from James 2, from verse 1 to 7. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Thank you. Thank you to Neil. Here's your mask. Am I allowed to touch it? <laughs> the sacred mask. I was, um, we were at Tawanda and Jolene's house a couple of days, uh, weeks back, and uh, it was still warm enough to swim. Um, that's the bit of context. It must have been about March. And um, uh, it was Ethan, their little boy, who looks up at me and he says, so you're the boss of the church. So with all the kind of uh, leadership muscle, I go, no, of course not. Jesus is the boss of the church. And I pull out all the best kind of like uh, explanations I can. And he goes, okay, okay. And then he comes back to me a little later in his costume. He walks up to me, he goes, so you're the boss of the church? So I go, no. And, he go, I, and I'm about to go, no, Jesus is the boss of our church. We work as a team and I do all this stuff. And he goes, I know, I know, Jesus is the boss of the church. Next to me, he goes, Want to come swim with me, boss? <laughs> so uh, I found it interesting because James is talking about favoritism and, and wanting to allocate people. We always want to find out who are you and what do you do and why are you important and whether you are six years old or you are 60 years old. This strange thing inside of the human being tends to want to go, who's the boss? Who's in charge? Or who's important? Who's not important? Why are they important? How can I get close to them? What does it mean if I'm close? And uh, it doesn't matter in what circles you run. There is this tendency, at least in some, to drop name, to talk about the people we do or don't know, how we know them, who we related to. There is this innate sense inside of so many of us to try to rank Things to try to work out how do we fit into this system called life. And James understands it. It has been happening since the beginning of time. It was happening in the early church. In fact, uh, not many kind of weeks or months into the early church, there's already favoritism. I don't know if you remember that story where uh, some of the widows were getting treated differently to other widows. And so they have to get a bunch of deacons to come help in the distribution of food because somehow there was this sense of favoritism. There was a treatment of some people over others. It's astounding. Whether you go to a school playground or you go to uh, the office, wherever you go, there is this strange sense that people want to rank. They want to place, they want to position themselves and others and to work out, where do I fit? Where does this all land? And James's topic is clear. 
He basically hits it in verse one. You can see it. Show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a, it's a teaching he wants to hammer home. And so he pulls out his heaviest hammer and he starts to speak about this thing. And uh, we live in a context where this is a popular word. I think if you live in the West, whether you've heard partiality, favoritism, discrimination, prejudice, these are, this is part of our national discourse. It's part of our global discourse. You only need to read the newspapers, uh, see what's happened in Stellenbosch in the last couple of weeks to know that there is a sense that some people seem to favor themselves over others, that some people seem to treat others as though they are lesser than themselves. There are people who perceive uh, things to be happening that, uh, that are happening most of the time. It's a complex world when it comes to this concept of favoritism or prejudice. And I uh, read this passage uh, when I began to prep, and I thought, oh, this is a hot potato. Nobody necessarily wants to hold this one and talk about it in public because it is so contested, because it's so sensitive. But James takes us there, and that's one of the beauties of working through a book in the Bible because you can't choose and go, oh, no, I don't want to talk about that one. It's a bit awkward. We just go there because the Scriptures take us there. And so join me as we walk with James and we discover how to deal with this thing called favoritism, prejudice, discrimination, partiality. Show no partiality, verse 1, as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, Lord in a world that is filled with contestation, that's filled with opinions, it, a world that loves to cancel people and, and, and set them aside, we pray today that we would have your heart. We pray that your heart of, of grace and graduation and inclusion would be our heart, that we would catch what you're trying to say through James's letter. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So in verses 2 and 3, you pick this up, James is using what seems like a half hypothetical, half real situation. You're not sure if he's exaggerating it. Most theologians read this and they go, it seems like he's telling a, a kind of story that may have happened in the church or something like it is happening. It says, if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, so picture it, uh, Rory Farrell comes in and he's got his big uh, fur coat on and his gold rings all over his hands and his big gold chain and he walks in and uh, there's just no seats left in the auditorium. And suddenly there's somebody who's a bit poorer, who, who's sitting on a chair and, and, and Rory in his big mink coat walks in and he starts looking around, there's no seat and somebody goes, sorry buddy, you gotta move. Rory's here, and look at his gold, his gold chains and stuff. He's important, surely. And so the guy like shuffles off and sits on the ground, and Rory joyfully sits on his beautiful, comfortable coat and asks someone to take his coat and put it down. I use Rory because he is the opposite of that. But it's a nice picture, right? Rory in a mink coat <laughs> with gold chains. Thought you might appreciate that. But what a strange setting where basically you've got these people who are arriving into these meetings that are in the church. And he's saying it's incompatible, it's inconceivable that some people would just be treated so differently based on their financial status. But, but he says this is, this is what's happening. It's, it's so unacceptable. They wear fine clothing and you say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, stand over there or, or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves 
and become judges with evil thoughts. It's a difficult thing to understand, I suppose. It's a, it's a complex concept here because in a way, we're 2,000 years later. In, in some ways, the, the church was one of the precursors, the, the forerunners to what's called human rights these days. This, would, this is so unacceptable, even as we read it, part of us is going, I can't believe that any church would have ever done this, ever, ever, ever. But, but 2,000 years of, of, of the kingdom of God and the influence of the church has, has changed society, at least in, in many societies, so that we look at this and we go, no, that, that shouldn't happen. However, whilst we also know that it shouldn't happen, we are aware that it can and still does happen. It's not always overt like this, but it is often subversive, and it often lives in our hearts in more subtle and unique and different ways. So James carries on, and he's talking about this concept of favoritism, and, and in verse 4, you see, have you not then made distinctions? But in, in verse 5 and, uh, and 6, and especially 6 and 7, he says, you've dishonored the poor man. Aren't the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? You can just leave it on the first slide, uh, Sharon, thanks. Um, just no, no highlights needed yet. Are, the, are, are, the, are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Aren't they the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? He's going, it's, it's fascinating, this situation. So firstly, he's telling a hypothetical thing of preferring the, the rich and the poor, rich over the poor. Then he's going, actually, do you get it that, that some of these rich people that you're preferring in these meetings are actually the ones who are often making your life more difficult? Now, a bit of context in this situation is that the Middle East and uh, Near East in the time, uh, it's factual that there was a minority of people who owned the majority of the land and the wealth, uh, much like, I think, many places today. Um, but it was very extreme at that time. Small amount of really wealthy people owned a lot and found it really easy to take people to court, to uh, expose them, exploit them, and then manage to take more of their property. And so the rich were really winning in the justice system or the injustice system, as you might want to call it. And so this, uh, this sense of the, the exploitation of the rich over the poor was, was real. Now, James is asking this question. He's going, how can it be? How can you guys... Accept this. It's such a strange way of behaving. You're a predominantly poor church. You've got wealthy people who are pitching up. You're treating them better, but actually they're the very ones who are exploiting you. Isn't that weird? You ever thought about that? But maybe it's actually not that strange if you think that we still today tend to do that. Even with our celebrities, they're often the ones who set the worst example and yet the ones we adore the most. We do that in all kinds of strange and bizarre ways where we prefer the wealthy, we prefer the, the people of prominence, and yet they're not always the ones who treat us the best. But what James is trying to do, he's trying to capture the heart of God that's been uh, expressed all the way through the scriptures. Deuteronomy 10 verse 17 says it like this, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords. This is Moses speaking. The great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. Listen to this. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow, and he loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. 
This is the heart of God. This is what James is trying to help us to capture, is that as we read this, we shouldn't be going, oh, it's such a pity that happened in the church. We should be capturing the wow factor of that God is a God who shows no partiality. Still to this day, he shows no partiality. He is not a favor. Uh, he doesn't provide favor to some over others, depending on where we came from or what school we went to or how much we earn. One of the things I'm, I think, grateful to say is that I think we as a church are heading in a healthy trajectory. And, and, and I find myself, as we have these conversations, often limping out of these types of conversations. You listen to the news or a, a discourse, and it feels like nobody wins, right? Have you ever felt like that when you listen to conversations around prejudice or favoritism? It's like there's these big conversations, and everybody limps out going, I just don't know what to do. And it's quite disempowering. My goal today is to not leave us all limping out, disempowered, going, I just don't know if I can do anything. I just can't help. I want us to leave feeling like God in his grace because he is a God who shows no favoritism and has actually lavished his love on every single person that we too can grow in that love and that we too can be those who show no partiality, no favoritism, and that we walk out of this uh, auditorium today with our shoulders back and our hearts filled with a desire to love like God loves. If I, if I do any of that disempowering, I pray that it's only the Holy Spirit who maybe convicts here and there to help us to go, okay, I need to work on this or I need to work on that. You see, when you have these kind of conversations, there's a couple of things that can happen in our world. One, things can get quite politicized. The moment you talk about partiality or favoritism, it becomes politicized quite quickly. And then the present political agenda jumps in and we lose the biblical nature of the conversation. And if it gets politicized, it quickly becomes Americanized at the same time, right? And suddenly it becomes left versus right and your liberal or your conservative persuasions that start to get in. And that makes it sometimes get quite ideologized. I, you bring in your preferred ideology and start to clash that up. Some political ideology or, or favored way of thinking. And slowly but surely as the conversation happens, the Bible just subsides and opinion and emotion starts to increase, right? You felt those before? Or we can either minimize or maximize this thing. Some people, you might be looking at me going, Raj, oh, why did you raise this thing? You wanna just minimize it, just let's not talk about it. It's such an overspoken about conversation and, and I think it's causing more heat than light. And then there's others who go, we have to have this conversation and we should define ourselves around this. And there are churches and organizations that define themselves around the conversation of making sure that we are not a prejudiced society, et cetera, et cetera. I think there's the danger of maximizing and minimizing and we've got to find ourselves somewhere in the middle, letting God guide us as we work through these important conversations. And then also it can get quite racialized. So we can politicize, Americanize, ideologize, maximize, minimize, and we can also racialize. And interestingly, James is not primarily racializing it. And what he's actually doing is he's socioeconomically assessing how people treat each other. Yes, racism is a conversation and it needs to be had and it is incompatible with the kingdom of God. We have to allow God into our hearts and our minds. We have to, if there is a stitch of racism, realize that that will not be compatible with the age to come. 
We will not enjoy Jesus if we have racism living in our hearts. And so we've got to continuously allow God into that. But James has a higher goal here, I think. He's saying any distinction, and often the easiest distinction we make between others is our socioeconomic realities, basically our wealth dynamics. He's saying we're much more comfortable, and I think it's true of most human beings, to work out lives in a same economic bracket. The moment we get forced up, things get difficult. Don't pretend it doesn't. When you're hanging with super wealthy people, your own sense of insecurity gets you know, exposed. And sometimes when you're hanging with people who are much less wealthy, that too exposes insecurities and discomforts. And James is going, neither of those is okay. I want to call you into a kingdom mindset that helps you to understand that love like Jesus calls us to love has no favoritism. Say to the person next to you, no favoritism. Sure. By the end, you're going to be saying it with much more conviction. <laughs> Verse 1, believers must not show favoritism. He's pretty clear. And I think it, it runs deeper sometimes than we think. And really, today's journey is to just freshly awaken us, freshly allow God into this conversation in our hearts. And, and I'm so grateful James takes us there. Two important disclaimers that Douglas Moo, who writes some of the best commentaries on James, he says this, firstly, to remind yourself that wealth is not a sin. Wealth is not a sin. Uh, James it makes it clear, and Jesus makes it clear. It, it's difficult to be incredibly wealthy. It, to enjoy the kingdom of God is much harder than for a poor person. Wealth can blind us. It can get between us. We can, we can have so many comforts in our wealth that we don't find our comfort in God, but it's not impossible to have wealth and to love and serve Jesus. You can do it. So don't, don't hear what's not being said in this. And also, poverty is not a guarantee of some sort of extra favor from God. Just because you're poor doesn't mean that everything's going to be uh, perfect in, in the eyes of God. You still can sin. You can still do things wrong. You can still displease the heart of God. So wealth and poverty are not uh, in opposition to one another. It's what's happening in our hearts as we view these things that can become quite complicated. So I want to suggest three implications from James as we look through this passage. Firstly, I think James is calling us to invite God to invade the way that we think about others. To invite God to invade the way we think about others. Look at verse 4. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? What he's saying here is he's saying your thought life is the birthplace of a lot of the stuff that eventually is how you, you behave. I'm so grateful that none of you get to hear my thought life. And I'm so grateful I don't get to hear your thought life, by the way, because our thoughts are scary things, right? And James has spent a lot of energy talking about how our tongues are meant to filter what our mind is doing. And we're meant to put a rein on our tongues so, and, and on our, our, our actions, actually. We should filter how we behave. And he's really going, eventually, if you think through something over and over, it will shape the way that you behave. And he's saying, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? He's simply saying, the fruit of your thinking is being seen in the way that you're treating people, the wealthy and the poor, and the way that you're favoring some over others. So, realize that your thought life is really powerful. 
And, and that sometimes we have the tendency to let ourselves off the hook because nobody heard it. Nobody heard what I said as I drove past that person and, and they behaved in a stereotypical way and I went, oh, so typical. But I didn't say it, I just thought it. But as I thought it, I reinforced something in my mind and my heart that essentially causes me to ultimately treat people differently. Because although in my mind it sounded so innocent, ultimately there becomes a favoritism over the typical behavior of so-and-so. And when push comes to shove, and you know when push does sometimes come to shove? It's when the fire is crackling and the meat is starting to be turned and you've watched as people have maybe got onto their third or fourth beer and they're a little more comfortable and suddenly you hear things that you didn't think people thought because the filter is down. I don't know if you've had those moments where suddenly you go, oh my gosh, did I just hear that? Did I just hear that person say, they always do that? And the courage and the fear inside of you is going, do I ask who they mean by they or do I shut up and just listen because I don't want to pick a fight with a person who's had five beers? You know that feeling, right? We all know that feeling where you've got to decide, do I stand up? Do I let this person express what's been living in their mind for so long and let them out or do I hold on? The point is, is that that person, because of their inebriation, has spoken out what is already living in their minds. The question is, is what are we letting live in our minds that we haven't checked? We haven't let God invade. We haven't actually asked God to come in and say, have I become a judge with evil thoughts? Have I let some of those stereotypes just live inside of my brain so that I eventually just have set people. I've just categorized certain people rather than allowed God to call me to treat every person as an individual filled with dignity and worth that I get to love one life at a time. That's the question. That's the million dollar question that James is asking. Have you not then become judges with evil thoughts? Oh God, may we not so cover our, our thought life that we don't let you invade it and change the way we love and treat people. It doesn't happen overnight. It happens as we reinforce and we let ourselves off the hook in the, the courtroom of our inner world that nobody else is watching. Secondly, I think James is telling us to make gospel identity the motivation for our love, not the appearance of people. Make gospel identity. He says it in verse five. He says, listen, my brothers, Beloved brothers and sisters, has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? I mentioned this already, but this is revolutionary. I need you to get this, that when the gospel of Jesus Christ came into the world and suddenly the poorest of the poor were able to have a meal with the richest of the rich and the very poorest who could hardly afford to put clothes on their body is sitting with the richest of the rich and their identity, one to another on level ground, is exactly the same. The world had never seen it. It was mind-blowing. 
And James is writing it, and it is scandalous. The Roman Empire were just laughing at these people going, that is not possible. Humans don't work like that. There's a caste system in every society, whether it's in the east, in the middle, or in the west, it doesn't matter. We have ways of ordering, and eventually the, the, the kind of bumbling of the road will order the potatoes top to bottom, and we'll know who's at the top, and we'll know who's at the bottom. We'll sift ourselves out. In come the gospel of Jesus Christ, where the poorest of the poor happens to be the very living son of God, the creator of humankind. And he comes and he shows what love really looks like. And he lives the life that all of us wish we could have lived in this contentment and fellowship with God. And he dies the death we should have died. And he rises again and he shows that actually this is what love is. And he includes all people at his table. And he says, come to me. And not only will I love you, but I will give you a name of honor that you could never imagine. I'll give you love that you could never imagine. You will become a child of the living God and you'll be a co-heir with Christ and you'll be seated in heavenly places and whether you can afford to put shoes on your feet and clothes on your body, you are equivalent to the very Queen of England if she also believes you're on the same ground. Wow, this was mind-blowing. And this was what James is calling people to treat each other as. He's saying the identity that you have in the gospel is how you ought to treat every human being, no matter how they look and no matter what they've got. Is this soaking in? Is this settling in? Is this rejigging? Is this kind of rebooting? Because in a South African context, we get tired by this. But the problem is we get tired by it because it's politicized and it's, it's ideologized. And, and so we try to minimize or maximize. But, but here I want to call us to realize that this is the kingdom. We need to gospelize ourselves to really, truly love. This isn't catching a political agenda. This is actually trying to quiet that agenda and say there is a much higher agenda at play here. It's called love. It's called the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there's an identity that James is calling us to treat people with. And, and if people aren't followers of Jesus, well, then here there's another identity that we still love with. It's called created in love by God. Image bearer of Jesus Christ. Image bearer of, of God, should I say. So every person who's created is created by God in love. And so there should still be no distinctions between how we treat people. We treat our brothers and sisters because they are, are, are family members, something I'm trying to do better. Uh, and I've just kind of resisted it over the years because uh, kind of got exposed to the Pentecostal kind of vibe and everybody was brother this and sister that. But you know that I found it quite refreshing to call my brothers, hey, brother, because I'm realizing that we are stuck together forever and that actually we're brothers and sisters. And sometimes to go, hey, brother, how are you? Hey, sister, you feel the sense of kindredness that we're actually brothers and sisters to the point that if our brothers and sisters biologically who don't love and follow Jesus, we're, we're closer to each other. We've got a much longer future together. We're stuck together in this thing called the family of God that we need to understand and, and live in and appreciate. But that doesn't stop us loving people who aren't of the faith. In fact, it should enhance our love because every person is created in the image of God for his love. Say to the person next to you, no favoritism. That's a little better. I think in verse six, James is finally trying to say, 
actively engage in, in, any, in, in any kind of opportunity to cause counter-exploitation. Counter-exploitation. So he's talking about exploitation here. You see, you've dishonored the poor man because you've favored the rich. And he's saying, aren't the rich the ones who oppress you, who drag you into court? It's like they're making your life miserable, but you still favor them. And he's saying, it's just, it's crazy. It's upside down. And I think what James is trying to do, he's trying to wake us up and say, you're of another kingdom. Don't, don't give in to these systems of preferential treatment. Rather do everything you can to counter this, to turn it upside down, to be part of Jesus' kingdom, to flip this thing upside down, to learn to love and take opportunities to push back where there may be opportunities to exploit. There's always micro and macro opportunities to exploit. There's a group of people in this community who you'll find just easily connect. And then there's some who may arrive who go, oh, it's a little harder work to connect. I don't have as much in common. I don't necessarily do the same hobbies. I don't necessarily come from the same background. Here's our first opportunity to counter-exploit, is to move towards anyone who might seem like this is a slightly challenging cultural context to get into, to say, how do I love you into this place to make you feel like you're at home? Like this is homecoming. Like this is the family of God. This is the best place you can be because the kingdom of God is at work in this place. I've been part of a life group where we had some people from uh, another African country living uh, close by. So delighted to have them in our life group only to find out that the lifestyle of our life group was pretty tricky for them to deal with because there was, there was stuff that we did by nature that they did as such luxury, as such, a, as such a treat, and suddenly we're doing it every week. Suddenly we're kind of eating things and enjoying things, and, and they're going, we have, we've never tasted this. We've never experienced this. And we had to wake ourselves up as a group and go, wow, we need to be careful and caring about how we love people and how sensitive we are to different people's backgrounds and what their expectations are of what's normal and sometimes we need to normalize through self-control. Do everything we can to actively engage in counter-exploitation, creating a safe place for people. I think one of the ways we do that is just being careful what we long for. Be careful what we long for. If we spend so much of our energy longing for more comfort, more wealth, more progress, it's gonna be very hard to include people who are not in comfort and not in wealth and are not making progress because that's just not the trajectory. So though we say we would, we need to redefine what it means to, to love and to stop loving some of these things that eventually what the scriptures call become idols. We love certain things so much that we just can't afford to love other people who don't have what we want because it's just another obstacle on the route towards our journey of comfort and, and, and our pursuit of, of whatever we want. Build a lifestyle of empathy with the poor. One of the best habits you can do in building a lifestyle of empathy with the poor and the marginalized and the vulnerable, in my mind, for my life, has been to fast. <laughs> Just fast as often as you can. Maybe it's once a week, once a month. Fast for a day, fast for two days, and pray. And you're not doing it because you're thinking about the poor. You're doing it because you're trying to remind yourself that more than anything, you need God. 
But as you fast, you find yourself empathizing. You find yourself realizing that you too are vulnerable and that you too don't deserve to have everything. And you put your body and your heart and your mind in some vulnerable places and suddenly your soul and your heart begins to care freshly for those who actually go to work most days feeling like you felt at the end of your day. And suddenly your, your rumbling tummy turns into a care-filled prayer. And it may even turn into a phone call to a person who you know's tummy rumbles every morning. And you call them. And, and that leads to, I think, seeing your, di- your dinner table as both a thermometer and a thermostat. Thermometer reads the temperature, thermostat sets the temperature. Your dinner table is a great thermometer of your love for people. I know it's a sobering thought, but I'm going to put it to you anyway, that our dinner tables are the meal places where we get to include people. I wouldn't say this if Jesus didn't use meals so often and didn't call people to meals all the time, but our dinner tables are certainly going to be the place that read the temperature of our love for people who aren't like us, our love for the vulnerable. I wonder if we couldn't use our dinner tables, not just as thermometers, to go, oh my gosh, maybe I could have a little more diversity around my dinner table, but also to turn them into thermostats, see it as opportunity, to set the temperature, not just in our community, but in our own hearts, to learn to love again to learn to to freshly love because as you have people around your dinner table, you get to conversations and you get to see the lines in people's faces. You get to see the stories and you get to hear what's going on and suddenly it's not theory. Suddenly it's about people. And I think James is saying in this passage, you're missing it entirely. You're flipping it upside down if you you do this as as a kind of, just preferential treatment. So we're going to go to the meal table because Jesus used meals all the time. He used meals all the time to show that actually the ground is level at the foot of the cross. You put your faith in Jesus, you get the meal that our souls have needed all along. You get relationship with God, you get welcomed in, you get justification by faith, you have a a cleared conscience because as you trust in him, he, he wipes your sin clean and he makes your conscience clear because he did what we could never do is, is make us right before a holy God. And so that's a gift for all people and as you come to the table, the communion table, you find yourself being reminded that this is what we need more than anything else. We're going to take communion in a slightly different way today, in that we are going to, we're going to take communion together. We're going to do it in groups of two or three, and we're going to remind ourselves that this meal table is the greatest meal table. And as we do that, we're going to pray for each other. We're going to thank Jesus for the feast that is his body broken for us, his blood shed for us. And we're going to invite his Holy Spirit to make us a people of love freshly to call us freshly to love, to call us to to become people whose dinner tables, whose meal spaces are places of redemption and restoration, of counter-exploitation, of of a great sense of um, uh, identity renewal in each other's lives, affirming one another and who we are and what he's called us to, about letting Jesus invade our thinking about how we love people. So I'm gonna ask the band to come up and I'm going to, 
read through the uh, communion story, or as Paul puts it. And maybe you can stand with me. Paul writes this, and he says, For for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this. Whenever you drink it, in remembrance of me. Verse 28, everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. So I'm not going to tell you when to start and when to pray, but what I am going to ask as much as is possible is to just get into groups of uh, two or three maximum and um, and just simply, if there's one person who's, who's most comfortable to pray, then let that person pray. We and our guys, uh, our prayer time, sometimes if you want to, if you're feeling a little uncertain and you're not sure you wanna pray, hey, no problem. Um, we normally do this, we say red, orange, green. Red means just be grateful I'm standing in this circle with you. <laughs> orange is, don't put pressure on me, I might pray, I might not. And green is, cool, I'm comfortable to pray. Maybe you just wanna get in the groups with your elements and go, guys, I'm a red, guys, I'm an orange, guys, I'm a green. As long as there's one green, cool. If there's two oranges, you're it, guys. But the point is, is we are not coming here. I'm calling us to courage because Jesus was courageous on our behalf. Jesus went to the cross, and love is sometimes tricky. And if we take communion by ourselves, it's wonderful. But the meal was meant to be shared. It's a communion meal. Think about it. Communion is fellowship. It's being together. And so we're gonna get into these moments, these gaps where we get to feed on Jesus. As you crush that uh, biscuit, that wafer between your teeth, remind yourself he was crushed on your behalf. As you take of that, that, uh, that cup, remind yourself his blood was poured out for each other that we could become a people of love. I wanna put this slide up and maybe if there's nothing else you wanna pray, maybe you can just pray this prayer. There should be one more slide. Come Holy Spirit, as we take this meal, fill us with your love. I think if you're an orange, you could pull that one off. I think we could. And you just, in your own time, I'm just gonna give a couple of moments for you to pray with other people. If the band starts and you're not finished, just keep praying together. But just stand, I think it's better to stand. It keeps the blood flowing while you take communion and just pray, find little groupings. Maybe don't gather too close around the table so that there's space for people to come get. And, uh, and then go back, find some uh, personal people to pray with. And let's see this not as obligatory, but as opportunity to go, I'm putting myself out of myself to become a person of love led by the Spirit, despite the possible discomfort. So let's go to the tables. Go for it.